Hello. Hello. I am Kenna. And I'm Koel. Welcome back to Diagnosing, Diagnosing a Killer. killer. Ooh, ooh. That's a tired one today. It's a tired... Do you feel like it was, like, low energy? No, I'm just tired. Oh, you're trip. tired. I thought you said... <laughs> I thought you said we sound tired brag on myself for a second. I went to Colorado this weekend and it was so much fun. I got to visit a couple of friends and we just had a blast and it's 85 degrees here right now and it was like 35 degrees up there. So it was <sighs> definitely a change and so it was jealous. very fun and we got to see the mountains and we got to hang out. You know, Halloween weekend was always, always fun in Colorado. So that's why I'm tired, but nice. I shouldn't be complaining about being tired from being, having fun, you know? <laughs> so. I'm tired because I'm on my period. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> Girl stuff. Just girl things. Just, you know, <laughs> girl things. <laughs> um, I don't think there's really any business we need to talk about before we get started. No, I don't think so. Cut and dry week. Yeah, there hasn't been cases. really a lot going on. I think everybody was just enjoying their holiday weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we hope that you guys have been enjoying these mental breakdowns that we've been doing. Yeah. Uh, we're going to continue to put those out every Sunday at midnight. Um, and the cases regularly should be coming out, hopefully on Thursdays, but last week I got too busy, so it was Friday. You were out of town, though. Yeah. So. <laughs> I did the editing on the plane on the way to Colorado, so you're That's welcome. That's commitment. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in. Today, we are going to be talking about Carla Faye Tucker. Carla Faye Tucker, okay. Mm-hmm. This was not not a known one for me. Um, I, I started reading and I got interested and uh, you might have a differing opinion of me at the end of this, and I had a differing opinion at the end of it as well because I of was yourself. Like, yeah, like I thought I went into it thinking one thing, and then I oh. came out of it thinking another. I was like, whoa. Yeah. Um. So without further ado, uh, Carla Faye Tucker was born on November eighteenth, nineteen fifty nine, in Houston, Texas, mm. to Larry and Carolyn Tucker. She was the youngest of three girls. Her older sisters being Carrie and Kathy, both with K's. So it's just like us, all three of us start with Kate. Carrie, Kathy, and, Car- and Carla. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, now, by all accounts, her parents didn't have the best marriage. We see this a lot in cases of, you know, like this, children growing up to be killers. They usually didn't have a great home life. Yeah, it's just interesting that, I mean, that, that clearly will forever be a theme. And it yeah. just shows how the importance of your mental development growing up. Absolutely. Now, Carla began smoking cigarettes with her older sisters at the age of eight. Eight? Eight. That's so young. I don't even know what a cigarette... Oh, maybe I did, but... (laughs) And um, at age 10, her parents decided that they were going to divorce. And actually, during these divorce proceedings, during the court hearings, she had uh, found out that her birth was the result of an extramarital affair. Okay. So So her mom... Mom... Okay. Yeah, had had an affair, and and she was the result of that. Wow. I know. Uh, Well, her mom, not being the... You know, having a good track record yet, she was a prostitute, and she actually introduced Carla to drugs and sex at the age of 12. Oh, my gosh. And then introduced her to prostitution at the age of 14. So maybe... Okay. So, I mean, again, we don't know the ins and outs, right? Like, but maybe... I don't know. Did the mom's... 
like because of the divorce, did the mom start to decline? You know what I, I mean? Think like maybe she was already in there. Might have been because of her behavior. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So maybe she was prostituting on the side, or maybe she was already cheating and she was like, mm, I can get paid for this. Yeah. Mm. Uh, now, get this. At the age of 14, Carla dropped out of school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she went to live with her mother full time, uh, where they both began traveling with well known rock bands like the Allman Brothers Band, the Marshall Tucker Band, and the Eagles. What? So they okay. started. She was 14. And her mom was, however, pulled her old. out of. School to become a groupie? Pretty much. Oh, my god! Isn't that awful? That is awful. Now, when she turned 16, she met a man named Stephen Griffith and was briefly married to him. Okay. He was obviously quite older. <laughs> um, he was 68. Right. <laughs> now, in her early 20s, she began hanging out with bikers. That was, like, kind of her theme. Her, okay. Um, she was, her like, a scene. biker rocker chick. Yeah. So she started hanging out with bikers, and it was at this time that she met a woman named Sean Dean and her husband, Jerry Lynn Dean. Okay. Her name is Sean, but that's the wife, just to be clear, because mm-hmm. I got a little confused when doing research. And in 1981, when Carla was 21, this couple introduced her to a name, a name, <laughs> to a man named Daniel Ryan Garrett. Okay. And he was 35 at this time. And she was 21? 21. Okay. All I right. mean, she's an adult, but yeah. still kind of creepy. Now, after spending the weekend using drugs with Danny and their friends, Carla and Danny entered Jerry Dean's apartment, so the husband, in Houston, Texas, on July 13th, 1983, between 2.30 and 4.30 a.m., with the intent of stealing a motorcycle that he had been restoring. So they're friends with this couple. You're a biker, you know, kind of group. Yeah. And they're like, let's get some money. I guess their their original plan was um, Carla had had a conversation with Danny and this accomplice that they'll end up having, James, that included wanting to go over to Jerry's apartment and intimidating and in intimidating him into giving them money. Right. And then if he refused, they were trying to, like, list out things that they would just steal instead. Right. Pretty much. So, like, in order of importance. Pretty much, yeah. I remember this case. Oh, you do? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Just when you said with the intention of stealing a motorcycle. Yeah. Like, <gasps> it, like, all came crashing back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> During these conversations, like, two weeks prior, one account had actually said that Carla was heard talking about, quote, offing Jerry. So... It doesn't seem like the intention was to was go over to, there and intimidate him. It was to... Yeah, yeah, and steal stuff. It was with the intent to probably murder him. Yeah. Now, as well as steal things. Yes. <laughs> now, this night, like I said, another friend of theirs named James LeBrant went with them to Jerry's apartment. James later reported that he himself went looking for Jerry's El Camino, because they were kind of steal that. That was one of the things. Uh, while Carla and Danny entered the apartment with... A set of keys that Carla claimed she found. She told James, I found these keys. But in reality, she stole them from Sean and then convinced Sean that they were lost. So wow. she's planning this as fuck. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that maybe James might only think they're going there to steal something. Oh, yeah. Not I don't think. Gonna... Yeah. I don't think that he thinks that at this point that yeah. they're murdering anyone. I agree. But clearly she's Carla's been planning this. Yes. For a while. Now, during the burglary, Carla and Danny entered Jerry's bedroom, where Carla sat on top of him. Hmm. You know, what you do when you're trying to intimidate When somebody. you're trying to intimidate. It's real intimidating. Yeah. Uh, well, it Car- might be. I don't know. Yeah. Carla actually later relayed to her older sister, Carrie, that when she entered the room, she immediately put this pickaxe that was next to the bed to Jerry's head and told him, quote, not to move, motherfucker, or you're dead. 
And this is very weird because later it's like, oh no, like what was me kind of like. But okay, so again, she's telling people or like at least her accomplices, you know, accomplice that James, that they're just going in there to steal stuff, right? Yeah. But who, who was the other guy that's with her? Her husband, Danny. Danny, okay. Well, her partner. I don't know if they were married. Okay, Danny? Yeah, the okay. older guy. I know, so, Danny and Jerry sound very I similar. I know, so it's like, Danny, Jerry. Danny's the bad guy, Jerry's, Jerry's the, the victim. victim. Yes. Okay, so yeah, she beelines it for his room, and then it's like, don't move, motherfucker. Don't move, motherfucker. Yeah. Gotta get this fixed. Surprise, Surprise motherfucker. motherfucker. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> now, trying to protect himself, of course, Jerry grabbed her above the elbow, as it was noted, and this is when it gets kind of... Harry, because one source said something, another source said something different. So mm. I'll give you both sides of it. Okay. One source said that Danny, this is when Danny intervened. Danny then hit Jerry numerous times on the back of his head with a ball peen hammer that he had found on the floor next to the pickaxe. And after hitting Dar- Jerry, Danny left the room. I know, why does he have all these weapons next to his I head? I was going to say, is Jerry a miner? Like, he, he goes to the mining, you know, he's a coal miner every day to go dig for gold. Like, oh, what man. is... He's got a pickaxe, a ball yeah. peen hammer. Like, what's I would say here? a pickaxe is a little out there for, like, a, a weapon to have on the side yeah, of Or yeah. a tool, I guess. Right. Now, after hitting Jerry with his hammer, Danny then left the room in order to carry the stolen bike parts out of the apartment. Carla stayed behind, however... And this is when James returned. Remember when James went to go look for the car? Yeah. So he returned at this time. He entered the room for whatever reason. Maybe he was looking for Carla or something. Or maybe he heard her. Yeah. Or and Jerry. he later reported that at this time, this is kind of bad, Jerry was making a gurgling sound. Yeah. Of, of course, which is what you do when you have blood in, you know, that area. Mm-hmm. And according to James, Carla responded by pulling the pickaxe back out, smiling and hitting Jerry again with it. Okay. So, like, really fucking creepy. Yeah. Uh, It's overkill. Oh, of course. I mean, I guess you could justify it by saying she didn't want him to suffer or whatever Mm. it is. But it's like, (laughs) you know, are you trying to render him, like, unable to defend himself? Or are you actively trying to murder someone? Yeah, exactly. Now, this is when James LeBrant left the scene, but he later helped Danny dispose of Jerry's car. And I'll explain why. Danny and Carla both reported that they were angry with James for leaving the scene. Like, right James after that. James is like, that. I'm out of here. Exactly. Like, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm out. Exactly. So, in order to make amends, and I put, and to prevent them from killing him, too, this is why James came back later to help with the car. So okay. that he was a kind of part of it, I guess. Maybe he was scared that they were going to come after him next because he yeah. saw something. Danny, after this point that James left... According to this source, Danny re-entered the room where he reportedly gave the final blow, the fatal wound, to Jerry in the chest with the pickaxe. Wow. Another source did not mention that Danny helped with Jerry's murder at all, and instead said that Carla stuck Jerry with the pickaxe 28 times while he was begging for his life and repeatedly using her name when he was pleading with her. So the first account was Danny's account of the events? The, there was two separate accounts. It wasn't either one of their accounts. Oh, I don't so think maybe it was it just was two like... different... Reports maybe that I read. two people. Oh, it's two different reports. Well, maybe maybe it was one of their accounts, but it didn't say like this is what Danny said and this is what you know Carla oh. said. It was like two different sources that I was reading. Right. So it different. could theoretically be someone that Danny told, yeah, and then someone that Carla told, yes. and then or James told, and this is just different potential um, interviews the police had with people yeah and so and so we'll we'll pretty much see that the first source that i read says that danny and danny was mostly responsible for jerry's death Mm -hmm. and carla played a role 
The second one says Danny didn't even help at all. It was all Carla that killed Danny. Or that killed Jerry. Pardon Hmm. me. Now, Danny then left the room again to continue loading the bike parts into the Ford Ranchero that they had driven there. At this point, again, Carla was in the room by herself when she noticed a woman who had hidden under the bed covers and against the wall in the same room. Wow. She's been here this whole time. Well, this woman was one Deborah Thornton. We're going to call her Debbie from Mm -hmm. now on. Now, Debbie had actually gotten into an argument with her husband the day before and went to a party where she ended up staying the night in Jerry's bed with him. Oh, wow. I don't know what happened, but they didn't say anything like that. It was just maybe they were just friends or whatever. Now, upon discovering Debbie, Carla and Danny knew that that Carla's name had been said over and over from Jerry when he was, you know, being hurt. And the lights were also on. And so they said, well, she's a witness. We need to kill her as well. Hmm. Now, it's reported that Carla grazed Debbie's shoulder with the pickaxe, where, of course, Debbie began to freak out because I'm next. I saw what you just did to him. Um, The two started to struggle, Carla and Debbie. And it was at this time that Danny reportedly re-entered the room. He just keeps going back and forth out of this room. Just coming in and checking on, making sure everybody's okay (laughs) or not. So he re-entered the room and reportedly separated the two. Well, then Carla proceeded to hit Debbie repeatedly with the pickaxe and then embedded it into her chest where it punctured her heart. And this is actually where the weapon was found later by investigators. So she left it there. Yes. Um, This is bad. Trigger warning. Carla later made a statement and testified that she had experienced multiple orgasms with each blow of the pickaxe during both of the murders. Ew. That's fucking disgusting, That's right? That's so gross. So it's like, not only are you like this monster of a person, but you're like genuinely you enjoying really this. You really enjoy it. That's, That's I just awful. got full body heaps. Now, the next morning, Carla showed up at the house of Douglas McAndrew Garrett, who is Danny's brother, at about 6.30 a.m. in Jerry's car. So she drove the car over there. Okay. Smart, right? Yeah. She, yeah. Now, after. She's not trying to hide it. Yeah. Now, after unloading the motorcycle frame from the back, she said, and I quote, we offed Jerry Dean last night. Just, Just straight it. up. Yeah. And I'm What'd sorry. What did you do last night? Went to a movie? Yeah. Murdered a guy? How cold is that? We That's offed awful. him. That's we like you, him. something you hear in a movie that you're yeah. like, nah, no one would fucking say that. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to whack the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Now, she told him about how Danny hit him with a hammer, but she with a pickaxe, and once again said that she received sexual sexual gratification. So this is multiple people that she's told. Uh, She then handed the brother Jerry's wallet, which Doug immediately burned in an ashtray. Although Doug insisted... He burned it in an ashtray? Right. Seriously. (laughs) I burned it in the sink. Like, it's just... It's just bizarre. Although Doug insisted they remove the motorcycle parts from his garage, he actually later allowed his brother Danny to store some of the parts with him. He actually disposed of the parts before going to the police, but led them to Danny and Carla at a later time. On top of all of this, he also called a man by the name of J.C. Moiser. He's a family friend who just so happened to be a detective in the homicide division. What? And he gave him James LeBrant's name as well. So he's like, yeah, you can hide your accomplicing murder shit here, but then I'm going to turn around and turn you in. Like, I'm sure it's, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I'd probably be like, yeah, I'm cool with everything. And then immediately when I'm safe, like run to the police. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, I think it's kind of a little weird that you would witness a murder like James did and not immediately go to the police. I mean, but I get that then he would have to really, like, explain what he was doing there. Well, I'm there to steal a bunch of shit. Yeah, exactly. And then I witnessed a murder. Exactly. And it's like, oh, like, okay, I wasn't just admitted to, to a bunch of shit. Sell some Girl Scout cookies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I was just passing through yeah. at, at 3 a.m. So the brother, Doug, actually, as well, later assisted the police in obtaining a taped conversation between Carla and Danny that discussed the murders. So, idiots. <laughs> Dummies. Yeah. Now, on the other side of things, um, on the victim's side, the morning after the murder, one of Jerry's co-workers by the name of Gregory Scott Traver had actually been waiting on Jerry to give him a ride to work. Well, he became worried when he didn't show, so he went over to the apartment to check on him, and this is where he discovered the gruesome scene along with the two bodies. He also noticed that the motorcycle was missing and the TV had been moved. So he looked, I think he noticed that first, <laughs> and then he noticed the bodies. He went to go sit down on the couch to watch some TV, and he's like, yeah. huh. This is just, like, cocked sideways Not a little bit. Not usually like that. Yeah. It's bizarre. Uh, now, on the evening of June 13th, so this is the same day, but, like, obviously that happened in the middle of the night, and now this is that night. Carla and this honestly cringed me the fuck out. Carla and Danny. Carla is cringy AF yeah. anyways. <laughs> Carla and Danny were watching TV when they saw the news about the murders. They reportedly laughed and giggled and said that they were famous and then they just called up James so that he could come over and watch along with them. Oh my gosh, they're famous. I'd be like, get fucked. I'm not watching that get with you. Are you not scared? <laughs> now, this is where I'm going to talk about the bodies. So a little bit of a content warning. Uh, examination of the bodies showed that Jerry had been struck in the head and had several stab wounds. There were a total of 28 stab wounds, 20 of which could have been fatal, along with a fatal skull fracture. So that's like pure fury. Overkill. Like, that's... That's way overkill. That is so unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Now, Debbie also died from multiple stab wounds to the chest and stab wounds and blunt trauma to the back. Uh, Pickaxe, like the one recovered from the scene, obviously caused the wounds that killed them both. Well, it was very obvious in Debbie's case, but, you know, it could, multiple people, it could have been multiple, you know, weapons. And so they determined that that was the weapon that killed both right, of them. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, she has a pickaxe protruding out of her chest. Yes. I could imagine that they could say that. Um, but she wasn't struck as many times as Jerry, right? I mean, yeah, from I all think it accounts, seem like it. is what it seems like, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like it was mostly geared towards him. But it might also be that maybe it wasn't as personal for Carla because she didn't know Debbie. But she yeah. knew Jerry. And yeah. Jerry could tell the police officers, of like, course. who they were. Yeah. I was debating on whether or not I wanted to say this because I didn't want to sound insensitive, but Carla, nobody fucking has 28 orgasms in a row. <laughs> nobody. Like, nobody you said you had an them. orgasm with every blow. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> Sorry, that's really terrible. That, but that is overkill. That, like, you are a fabricator. Yeah. Along <laughs> with anything else, you're a fucking liar. Yeah, above anything else, you are the worst liar in history. <laughs> Now, uh, the investigation led to uh, Carla and Danny's arrest just five weeks later. I actually didn't hear if, or come across, I, I probably should have looked into it a little bit more, but I didn't come across anything about James getting charged or tried for anything. Well, you know what? And, and a lot of times like that, of course, like he was afraid probably to come forward yeah. in general because he was going to steal stuff. Yeah. Um, and of clearly he like aided in the disposal yeah, of evidence. Of but with his testimony, he, he probably, probably got a took plea a, deal. a plea deal. Yeah. yeah. Now in September of 1983, Danny and Carla were indicted for murder and tried separately for the crimes. Carla was originally charged with both murders, but after testifying against Danny, the charge for the murder of Debbie was dropped. Dropped? Dropped. And it, it, the, okay, so she basically took a plea where she didn't have to get charged for both murders Yeah, when she testified against Danny. I also read that Danny was not charged with her murder either. 
So, so Carla entered a plea deal of not guilty and was jailed while awaiting trial. But it doesn't seem like either one of them got charged for the murder of Debbie at all. That's terrible. She was just as much of a victim as... Yeah, charged for the murder, but I don't know. I I don't know. If somebody has any information about that, email us. Please. Yeah, I mean, it might not have been a first-degree murder charge. It might have been a different type of charge. Yeah, of course. Um, And we'll get... Actually, there's a lot of information in here about Debbie's brother, so we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. I didn't find much about her actual conviction Mm -hmm. or Danny's, but... I will tell you that the death penalty was hardly ever sought out for female killers, of course. But, however, Carla, along with Danny, were both sentenced to death. Um, Now, soon after being in prison, Carla took a Bible from the prison ministry program and read it in her cell. I actually listened to I thought she was going to eat it. Right? (laughs) uh, She took a Bible and then she ate it. I was watching a documentary on the plane Mm -hmm. and it said um, that the lady that was like, like, hosting the, the prison ministry, she said that Carla, like, sneakily took the Bible like she thought she was stealing it. She was like, she had no idea they were free. And I was like, that's kind of funny. <laughs> like, I do that at, like, grand openings at Trader Joe's. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't have to samples. sneak those. They're a gift. <laughs> now, after reading the Bible, she later recalled, quote, I didn't know what I was reading. Before I knew it, I was in the middle of my cell floor on my knees. I was just asking God to forgive me. And honestly, dude, in this documentary that I watched, it's called, like, The Power of Forgiveness or something, and I'll explain why later, but she's... It's like I almost believed her. Like, she's very convincing, and she seems like the nicest fucking person. I'm like, were you just, like, really on drugs and that fucked you up, or are you that manipulative of a person? I mean, I would think she's that manipulative. I mean... That's terrifying. The fact that she, clearly she has no remorse by going around and telling people the story. Yeah. And that she climaxed a billion times, which again, liar. (laughs) You are a liar. Um, (laughs) But I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, she thinks that that probably made her sound cool, which is even worse, like, than just being, like, boisterous about it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's a bunch of bullshit that she's, like, she knows she's going to be on trial. Now, all of a sudden, she's going to turn her life around because she stole a Bible. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Yeah, so this actually says, uh, Carla became a Christian in October of 1983, and she later married her minister, Reverend Dana Lane Brown, in 1995, and they actually had a Christian wedding ceremony inside the prison. Hmm. Seemingly reformed. (laughs) Now, yeah. So I mentioned that Danny was also on death row, but Danny ultimately died of liver disease in 93 while Mm. awaiting execution. Uh, Between 1984 and 1992, requests requests by Carla for a retrial and appeals were denied. But on June 22nd, Carla requested that her life be spared on the basis that she was under the influence of drugs at the time of the offense. She said that she was now a reformed prisoner, and if she had not taken the drugs, the murders would have never happened. There's tons of people that do drugs and don't murder people. Literally. Like, tons of people. Yeah. Tons of like people. Like, a billion people. Like, a billion <laughs> orgasms. Like, a billion orgasms. <laughs> now, this was very interesting to me. Her plea drew support from abroad and also from some leaders of American conservatism. Among those who appealed to the state of Texas on her behalf were Bakri Wali Ndavi. He was the United Nations Commissioner on Summary and Arbitrary Executions, the World Council of Churches, Pope John Paul II. Oh, my God. 
Italian Prime Minister Romano Prodi, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives Newt Gingrich, televangelist Pat Robertson, and Ronald Carson, Debbie's brother. What? All of these people appealed to the state of Texas on her behalf so that she wouldn't get executed. But, like, still life. Yes, not okay. out of jail, just not executed. Okay. Now, the warden of Texas's Huntsville prison also testified that she was a model prisoner and that after 14 years on death row, she had likely been reformed because he's a psychiatrist. Is he really? He, no, I'm lying. He's oh. definitely not a psychiatrist. I think you're a worse <laughs> he can't liar. Make that call. <laughs> <laughs> Even with all of this, the board still rejected her appeal on January 28th, 1998. <laughs> Hours before the execution, George W. Bush, who was the governor of Texas at the time, refused the final 11th hour appeal to block her execution. Now, while on death row, Carla was incarcerated in the Mountain View unit of Gatesville, Texas. That sounds too fancy. Mountain View. Mountain View. There's no mountains in Texas. East Texas? Oh, no, East Texas is flat. It's a hill country, not the mountain country. Where's the mountain? Where's the closest mountain? Mexico. New Mexico. 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 (laughs) The old Mexico. (laughs) Old Mexico. OG. (laughs) OG Mexico. Now, she became the Texas Department of Criminal Justice... She became the Texas Department of (laughs) Criminal... Criminal. Criminal. Now, she became the Texas Department of Criminal Justice's death row inmate number 777. Ooh! Right? Jesus! That's fitting, because she was all about God, apparently, at this time. Now, on February 2nd, 1998, state authorities took her from the unit in Gatesville and flew her on the TDC... <laughs> and flew her on the TDCJ aircraft, transporting her to the Huntsville unit. For her last meal, she requested a banana, a peach, and a garden salad with ranch. Dang, that sounds good. Right? It does kind of like one. my meals. I know. <laughs> Not really. I don't like peaches. What was it? Something peach? A banana, a peach, a banana, and a garden salad of ranch. Peach. Do you think they were organic? If I had to have one more banana in my whole life, it would be an organic banana. Of course. You can't They're, have a different one. They taste the way all bananas should. Yes. It's so weird. I agree. That and sumo oranges. Sumo oranges are the way that every orange should taste. Tawny knows what I'm talking about. Sumo yes, oranges I... are delicious. And you can get them every March. Oh. There is such Yeah, there is a seasonal citrus. Well, it's November. I know. I'm excited. (laughs) We're going to have cold weather early this year, too. We're going to have big sumo oranges. I'm so excited. Now, Carla also selected four people to watch her die, who included her sister, Carrie Weeks. Don't know where the other sister was. Her spouse, Dana Brown. Her close friend, Jackie Onkin. And Ronald Carson, Debbie's brother. What? Now, the way that this works, and I heard about this in the documentary, which I did not know, there's a, it's like a three box kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In the middle, there's the table with the gurney and the yeah. straps so they can put the inmate on there. Right. On one side in another room is the victim's family, and on the complete other side is the prisoner's family or okay. friends, whoever. Yeah. So, Ronald Carson decided himself that he wanted to be on her side of the execution <sighs> instead of the victim's side. I, now, you may be thinking, me. why the fuck would the victim's brother want to be on her side of the execution? Why the fuck? He actually supported the execution of her at first, but after a religious conversion, he decided that he was against any and all executions. Everyone's now, converting. I'll get, I'll, I'm going to get more into that in just a minute, because I'll go, because this is very interesting. But now, the witnesses for the murder victims included Debbie's husband, Richard, 
her only child, William Joseph Davis, and her stepdaughter, Katie. Carla's execution was also witnessed by many members of the TDCJ, Warren Baggett, and various representatives of the media. Before I continue, I really just want to talk about Ron really quickly, because I've been kind of, like, hinting at it, hinting at it. Because it also, obviously, seems strange that he was on her side. Mm -hmm. Now, this is his side of the story. Uh, He had actually gotten home from work at 5 p.m. the day of the murder, or the day after the murder. And he gets a phone call from his dad saying that he needed to go over because his sister had been murdered. He said he didn't believe it, and it became real to him when he saw it on TV. Mm. Their mother had died when he was five, and his sister pretty much raised him. The only two children of the family, so they were, you know, just them two. Yeah. She made sure he had clothes to wear, that there was food on the table. He said that she would slap his hand if he did something wrong and made him do his homework. I mentioned that the mom had died when he was five. She had left their birth father when they were little. Very little. And had been with this new man. I'm not sure if they were married or just together. I see. He took on the role of caretaker when she died. Mm. However... The kids didn't really want to stay with him. I don't didn't hear anything about abuse yeah. or anything, but they weren't. It wasn't their real dad, and their real mom was gone. Mm-hmm. Now, when Deborah was old enough, she took it upon herself to travel to Texas in search of her birth father. Hmm. I think that her and Ron had two different birth fathers. Is I what see. happened. Okay. Now, three years later, when Ron was fifteen, he left for Texas to reconnect with his sister. He said that when he arrived, he got really into drugs, alcohol, weed, LSD, whatever he could get his hands on. He just hmm. went down a really bad path. Yeah. Later on, this is after Deborah was murdered, Ron had reconnected with his birth father for a long time. He finds out that his birth father father has been shot and killed. Yes, he, he, he was, was trying murdered. to find him, and then he found out that he had been murdered? He had, he had reconnected with him and had oh. had him in his life for a while, but after Deborah was murdered, I didn't then, say how long after, yeah. he found out that his birth father had been murdered. Wow. It, but it seemed like it was very shortly afterwards, within like, like a few months. Damn. Now, apparently his dad was murdered by a teenage male prostitute. In his home. Okay. I want to talk about this case. That's why I'm mentioning this, because it's very interesting. Now, Ron, turning back to what he knew, began getting worse into the drugs and alcohol until he was given a Bible that his dad owned. His dad's, one of his dad's doctors actually gave it to him, Hmm. wrote in it for him, and then after they went through the belongings and stuff, the doctor gave this to Ron as a gift. Hmm. He said he had never read the Bible before, and he was really fucked up that night, and he began to read the Word of God and got to the part where they killed Jesus, and he said, and I quote, my God, they even killed God. <laughs> so he said, <laughs> oh, he said that he prayed That's that night. cold-blooded. Yeah, right? He said he prayed that night for the first time. He then went to visit Carla in jail, intending on being a dick and spitting in her face and stuff like that, and he actually told her that he forgave her hmm. after his relationship started with God. Mm-hmm. He said that this is when his hatred and anger was taken away and a weight was lifted off his shoulders. He also said that he continued to write frequently and visited Carla once every two months all the way up into her execution. He actually, That's why he decided to sit on the prisoner side of the execution room on that day. He was noted as saying that she did not need to die and that her and Debbie were, he knew that they were sure to get along in heaven because nothing bad matters up there. Again, I only mention this because I really would like to cover the story of his dad because that seems like an entirely different story, you know, mm-hmm. in and itself. Yeah. But I just think that's super, like, super big. I could not, I don't think I could do that. I think that it's, it's kind of, for me, and I feel like he found a coping mechanism that works for him, mm-hmm. and that is throwing himself into religion, and I think that clearly he had been through a lot growing up. And for his sanity, yeah, yes. he needed that. Absolutely. And, and you know, with the loss of his sister and the loss of his bio dad and, yeah, totally. I can see that. Like, 
he's already carrying so much. Why carry these extra things too? Yeah. Like harboring exactly. You know these these bad feelings. So yeah, makes yeah. sense. Now I'd like to mention Carla's last words because they're interesting. She said, and I quote, after being asked if she would like to say anything, quote, Yes, sir. I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I'm so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. She then looked at her husband and said, Baby, I love you. She then looked at Ron and Reverend, said... Reverend, I love you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. President. Mr. Reverend. <laughs> she then looked at Ron and said, quote, Ron, give Peggy a hug for me. She then looked at all present, weeping and smiling, and said, quote, Everybody has been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I am going to be face-to-face with Jesus now. Warren Baggett, thank all of you so much. You have been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I will see you all when you get there. I will wait for you. That's what she said. That was her last words. Damn. She was executed by lethal injection on February 3rd, 98. And as the chemicals were being injected, she praised Jesus Christ, licked her lips, looked at the ceiling, and hummed. Which is, like, kind of eerie. She was pronounced dead at 6.45 p.m. only eight minutes after receiving the injection. She was buried at Forest Park Lawndale Cemetery in Houston, Texas. This was interesting. She was actually the first woman to be executed in the state of Texas in 135 years, with wow. Chapita Rodriguez being the first, being the most recent, mm-hmm. um, was executed by hanging in 1863 during Jeez. the American Civil War. Carla also became the second woman executed in the U.S. since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 76. Dang. Doesn't happen for a woman yeah. to get executed. I mean, it was particularly brutal. Of course. And that's like... I think the orgasm thing really did it for me. I'm like, yeah, like what that the is hell? a part. That is a definitely a a part of whether it's true or not. She got gratification out of saying it. Yeah, you know, and that's like that's creepy. That is the complete lack of, yeah. of empathy for me, for sure. Now, in the year following her execution, Tucker Carlson, who was noted as a conservative commentator, that is not my words. That's what it said. Okay, questioned Governor Bush about how the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles had arrived at the determination on her clemency plea to not let her, you know, her plea go through. Mm-hmm. Carlson alleged that Bush, alluding to a televis- televised interview which Carla had given to Larry King, smirked and spoke mockingly about her. Who was being interviewed? Larry King. Larry I mean, King Larry was King interviewing was Carla. Carla, but okay. this guy Carlson was saying Tucker that Carlson. Bush was referring to this interview in which Carla had given to Larry King, and when Bush was saying it, he smirked and spoke mockingly about her. You got her. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. You got her, Bush. You got it. <laughs> you got her. Texas. <laughs> Another man by the name of Fred Allen, he was the captain of the, quote, Death House team was interviewed by Werner Herzog for the 2011 documentary called Into the Abyss. Within days after Carla's execution, by the way, this guy, Fred Allen, had managed over 120 executions at this point. Okay. So within days after hers, he suffered a, quote, emotional breakdown. And I really wanted it to say mental breakdown so I could be like, Poomch. and <laughs> he actually resigned from his job, giving up his pension and changed his position on the death penalty. He was noted as saying, quote, I was pro-capital punishment after Carla Faye and after all this, until this day, 11 years later, no, sir. Nobody has the right to take another life. I don't care if it's the law, and it's so easy to change the law. So this is like, this is, oh gosh, what an interesting case, because it's not just about her and what she did, but it's all of these, like, ripple effects that are happening. I I think that's what really drew me to this case was all of the... 
aftermath of even before she was executed. Just yeah. the idea that she was going to be executed sparked all these conversations and all these debates and all these, like, what if, what if, you know, whatever, right what's, or wrong kind of thing. What's kind of bizarre to me, though, is that I feel like people get executed every day by lethal injection. Not women. And not women. And not but pretty like, women. She was a pretty woman. Yeah. I hate to say that, but she was. And she was, I mean, she was she white. She was white. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's interesting to me. Yeah. That is the case of Carla Faye Tucker and Danny, but I don't think he deserves to be talked about as much. No. Not that she yeah. deserves to be talked about, but yeah. her story is yeah. much more interesting. You got her. <laughs> Again, she wasn't necessarily diagnosed with anything, but I'd like to speculate on what I think she could have been diagnosed with mm-hmm. or what have maybe occurred. Um, now, there is a disorder called substance use disorder. We've obviously talked about the fact that she was under the influence of drugs during the time of the crime. Mm-hmm. It is classified as a mental disorder that affects a person's brain and behavior, leading to a person's inability to control their use of substances such as legal or illegal drugs, alcohol, or medications. Symptoms can range from moderate to severe, with addiction being the most severe form. However, researchers have found that about half of individuals who experience a substance use disorder during their lives will also experience a co-occurring mental disorder and vice versa. Co-occurring disorders can include anxiety, depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, bipolar disorder, personality disorders, and schizophrenia, among others. That makes me think that maybe, just maybe, and I'm not giving her an out, I'm just saying, maybe one of these things did co-occur and maybe that's what caused her to have that break. Because by all accounts, she didn't do anything even remotely close to that for the rest of her life after that, yeah. you know? So that is interesting. Like, I mean, I've, I've definitely had my fair share of experiences with people that maybe they smoke weed every day, you know? And it's again, not that THC can be an addictive chemical, but the habit can be oh, yeah, the dependency and the sure. dependent. I mean, it's no different than smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. In my opinion, I mean, if you overuse a substance, you overuse a substance. Yeah, exactly. Um, even, you know, prescription pills. You can overdose on water. If you drink too much water, it can harm <laughs> it's you. true. You <laughs> can get water poisoning. Um, <laughs> I had a kid in my class once that he said, you can get cancer from apples because if you eat too many apples, you're going to get cancer. cancer. And like, <laughs> I don't know about all that, but... <laughs> But it's true. I think that um, when you have a dependency on a habit, doesn't matter what habit it is, mm-hmm. you're still not allowing your brain a chance to kind of like breathe yeah. and settle and realize like where your like where your actual like natural tolerances are yeah. and like how you can be tolerant around the world around like of the world around you. So yeah, I totally I can. And depending on what kind of drugs, which they didn't really say, did they? Exactly. No, it didn't specify. But I think what's really, it really holds a lot of weight is the fact that she, I mean, even cigarette smoking at eight years old. Yeah. Drugs and substance abuse at the age of 12. Like, you, yeah. that's more than 10 years before your brain is fully developed. And that who can knows? very easily influence your cognitive thinking. And who knows what kind of drugs she was experiencing while she was on the road. Exactly. With her mom being a groupie and, like, all that stuff. I mean, even t- cocaine. You don't know what's in that shit. Well, Drew know? Barrymore was going to Studio 54, I think, at 12. Her mom was just dropping her off and was like, Bye, Drew. Have a nice night. Call me when you need me to pick you up, sweetheart. Yeah. And then, you know, she was doing cocaine all night. Yeah. So, um, and she talks about how that still affects her to this day. So using drugs does not make you a killer. Of course not. And I think that there is something to be said about people who commit crimes while under the influence mm-hmm. and especially when they've been under the influence for a long time. I mean, for her whole life, she was pretty yeah. much under the, as soon as she was able to kind of 
do those things, physically do it yeah. for herself. You know? So maybe there is some validity in her turning her life over to God or Jesus yeah. and being able to, like, have a moment of meditation mm-hmm. and not having this dependency. But I still don't believe in the billion orgasm things. I think that's <laughs> absolute bullshit. She might have said that when she was high, though. I don't know. Yeah, you can, you can be a Christian all you want. That doesn't mean you can do 30 <laughs> orgasms in one sitting. <laughs> No, that's terrible. <laughs> um, anyways, that's the story of Carla Faye Tucker. That was kind of a short one, but I know I think I got, you know, some pretty decent information in there. It was kind of a cut and dry case. I mean, yeah. it, it wasn't really like a whole search party or anything <laughs> like that. They kind of just admitted what they did and then right. got yeah. what they got. It seemed like it, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel for the James guy a little mm-hmm. bit, like for him to have to witness that too. And I of hope course. that he had an opportunity to realize that he probably wasn't hanging around the best people. Right. Um. So you know yeah well thank you all for listening i hope that you're enjoying our content we're hopefully living up to your expectation of content weekly and a couple days in in between each um i can't believe it's episode nine already (sighs) it's crazy i know it's gonna be episode nine and ten in a little bit a couple days from now in the meantime when you're waiting for new episodes you can follow us on instagram at diagnosing a killer you can hit us up on twitter at killer diagnosis we also do have a Patreon set up, patreon.com slash diagnosing a killer. And please email us at diagnosing a killer at gmail.com because I've had that one email, but no more. <laughs> I was going to say, somebody subscribe to our Patreon because I'm the only person. Yeah, I need to. I still need to. <laughs> I want my dollar back. Yeah. <laughs> bullshit. It's bullshit. Well, we hope to hear from you guys soon and we hope you keep listening to us. Yeah. And we love you. And we'll see you on Sunday for yes. our. Mental breakdown. Times. Yeah. Episode three. Three point oh. Three point oh. <laughs> okay, love you. Love bye. you. Bye.